This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. <laughs> yes. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy. And I look forward very much to having your company through to 11 o'clock on this beautiful post-election Melbourne morning there. I'm looking across at some slightly glum faces here. So I will introduce you to um, three of Melbourne's best radio talent. Uh, we have sitting next to me our resident GP, Miss Medic. Welcome back. Thank you. Are you OK this morning? Oh, look, I do feel that sort of grey cloud despite the blue skies trying to shine through on this Melbourne morning but we'll we just have to move forward don't we we'll try and spread some joy in this next yes. hour in the far corner we've got our resident psychologist rainbow rainbow doctor nice to have you back yeah nice to be here oh my goodness a bit of a sad sigh there wasn't it yeah. <laughs> porridge didn't taste quite as good this morning it didn't it did and finally following a stellar first outing on mother's day a few weeks ago we have our resident scientist toxicologist software engineer and yes psychotherapist prudence dear welcome back prudence hi nick hi everyone it's good to be here today I thought you were going to say resident psychopath, actually. but We'll keep that one up our sleeve. <laughs> we? And, of course, don't forget, I'm our fourth and most important man in the room, the man behind the buttons, the microphone. I'm not quite sure how to introduce you. Anthropologist, sociologist, expert, knob twiddler, whatever it is, panel beater, welcome back. Thank, to, thank you for being here to help us. Our hero. <laughs> so we've got a packed show today, and in the light of the focus of mental health during the election build-up, we'll be talking about the state government's initiative to address high levels of mental health issues in schools and after what might have been a late and indulgent night last night for some people we'll be talking alcohol is it ever a good thing what's happening in china a country that traditionally had a low level of consumption so i won't talk about that in a minute and if that's not enough i'll be reporting back from the recent voluntary assisted dying conference that was held here in melbourne last week all that and more is coming up right after this doctor doctor give me the news i got Hey, it's 10.05 on a Sunday morning, post-election morning with me, Dr Nick, Miss Medic, Rainbow, Doc and Prudence, dear, and we're talking news here. Miss mm. Medic, what have you got for us this morning? Well, I feel a little bit harsh bringing this up now, but I think it's probably been um, obvious to many people looking at the press this week. If you want to hear a little bit more about the uh, rising conservatism that is... Uh, heading our way um, nothing sort of spoke of that more than the drastic change to abortion laws that is sweeping through some of the conservative states of the US yes. culminating in uh, the Alabama ruling which was one of the most strict um, abortion laws that came through on Wednesday so essentially Alabama have moved to ban abortion from the time of heartbeat detection which is as early as six weeks pregnancy which is astonishing and very much of concern and just you may not be an expert on law in america but my understanding is that a little bit like australia have state-based laws and they have federal laws uh, so previously was the law in alabama different and how have they been able to change it yeah so actually the law stands according to um 
the Supreme Court ruling of 1973, which is Roe versus Wade, that said that you can't overrule a woman's reproductive right. Um, the state has no right to do that, so that until was a the nation- time of viability. A, yeah, that was a nationwide law. That's right. And so now these sort of more state-based legislations are seen to be small attacks trying to get into the Supreme Court to overrule that And I'm presuming that the push for this comes from the religious right? Exactly, the religious right. There was 25 uh, white um, Republican males that voted in Alabama to pass this law. And my understanding is one of the reasons they reckon it's worth doing this is because the changes to the Supreme Court. Well, that's right. So they think this is now the time to sneak in a case if an abortion case could be brought towards the Supreme Court. Um... In the current climate where we've got very conservative judges sitting on the Supreme Court, there's the potential to override Roe versus Wade, which they think if that was to happen, within 24 hours, 30 states across the US would have a complete abortion ban, which is astonishing. Now, some states have gone to try and counter that. So New York, um, Oregon, California have tightened their laws in a preemptive move to try and prevent, if the Roe versus Wade um, was overruled in the Supreme Court, that they would still be able to have legal abortion within their states. However, as we know, the, you, when you've got uh, you know a country as big as America, if you only have a number of states able to uh, provide um, illegal abortion, there's going to be a massive knock-on effect. And just the access becomes a massive issue. So for, you know, women, it's obvious that the first women that are going to feel the effects are the ones that are financially restricted, geographically restricted, that are going to have this um, limited access to legal abortion. And it's, you know, this is dramatic. This is an, it's an attempt to control women. And I think we need to be on the front foot to look out for changes towards this in our society as well. And you're saying that perhaps in the light of the election result last night? Well, yes. (laughs) And look, you know, it's not even as sort of removed as that, as such as that there's um, Mary Stopes, which is one of the organisations that does provide this type of reproductive... um, you know, services, uh, even in Australia, there's with these bans happening in the States, there's the potential for funding to be pulled from these sorts of international bodies that provide abortion outside of America as well. So this is, you know, it's a fundamental right of a woman to have control over her body. Abortion needs to be accessible. It needs to be affordable. It needs to be legal. And we need to just watch this so very closely. I don't see a lot of disagreement from the rest of the panel on that particular one. This is a, it's a very, very important one, isn't it? It's a watch this space, so thank you for letting us know about that one. Prudence, dear, you were going to tell us something even Nick. more cheerful. Oh, <laughs> well, no, maybe there's some good news. Maybe there is some oh, good news in this you. one. Um, yeah, look, I mean, something that came across my news feed during the week, um, and maybe it was because of my age, which I'm not going to tell you what that is, but I took some notice, and it was, um, you know, it was a report around dementia or Alzheimer's, which is this chronic irreversible condition that kind of results from brain cell death, I think, would be the simple explanation for it. And we do really see it in older people, and there are some rare instances of of early onset, but it's a crippling and distressing disease 
uh, for both the sufferer and, of course, their families. And, I mean, there have been a few high-profile people who have experienced that. Um, so the World Health Organization have just sort of, you know, put out some data that around, you know, the fact that there's about 50 million people worldwide affected by, by dementia in one form or another. Um, it costs something like over $800 billion, you know, to annually to treat and the diagnoses they reckon are going to triple by 2050. Triple. Yeah, wow. but, but, but aging population, I think, is probably part of that. Um, and I guess the key thing is, although they're saying treating it, I, mean, I think most of it's supportive care. There isn't really any effective kind of treatments to reverse the, 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 the sort of uh, the injury. No, the, the current medications are pretty universally useless. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So... Um, so, you know, I guess it's prevention, isn't it? You know, protection is, is the best approach here. And so this study did kind of highlight some of the key sort of factors that lead to a, a predisposition to this, one of them being age. And I don't know how we avoid that one. We can't stop getting older. But it was probably quite important to say as well that, I mean, just as, as you age, it's not inevitable you're going to get dementia. It's not everyone gets it by any means. Um, but there were quite a few sort of clear lifestyle factors around physical inactivity, smoking, unhealthy diet, um, excessive alcohol consumption, all increase the sort of threat of the disease. So we kind of probably that's not terribly surprising. So um, let's just so smoking, excess alcohol, oh. lack of physical exercise. Yeah, and bad diet. The sort of thing we say all the time. But, yeah. but, but bad diet, is there anything specific that they were talking about in terms of diet and dementia? Well, I think it's, um, it's largely like um, the sort of balanced diet and certainly something towards the Mediterranean diet. So, you know, like appropriate types of fats, um, a good mix of carbohydrate and, uh, and other sorts of things. Yeah. I once read or heard that five walnuts a day decreases your risk of dementia by about 30%. And I meant to look it up and now I've been sort of inspired to again look at that research because I could definitely yeah. handle five walnuts. I yeah. think you should look at that research. I, I need to I look wonder. at this. <laughs> Definitely needs a little bit because that's always the problem with this sort of research. Yeah. But also they found out oh, it was hypertension, um, so high blood pressure, diabetes, um, cholesterol and obesity. So things that can be treated which will actually reduce your risk. So addressing those factors is really quite important. Did they mention anything about sleep? Because that's one thing that people talk about. No, I didn't see that one actually. Okay. Yeah. But it's an interesting point, isn't it? We all need to move to a Greek island, not drink the retina, nibble on walnuts and run around the beach. That's right. Can Sounds I, good. Can I ask a question um, of you, Dr Nick and Miss Medic, about the assessment for diagnosis or assessment for referral? Because I've heard stories of um, older people, some of whom I know, kind of practising the questions, the questions that are asked, like spelling words backwards and... Um, so that's know, a, a screening tool. The screening for, tool. Yeah. So yeah. there is a sort of a brief screening tool that we sometimes do to just assess in a very um, rudimentary way someone's cognitive ability. But for a formal diagnosis of dementia, there's a much more in-depth um, set of tests that are normally done by a specialist geriatrician. Um, so certainly not on one of those little simple mental state exams would we make a diagnosis of dementia, but it might be enough to sort of make you think, oh, I need to look into this person's cognition a little bit more. So, so you can't trick the system. You can't trick the system. Wait. And look, there was, one of the questions on there is what is the current Prime Minister? And for a lot, a lot of us felt that that was a very unfair question over recent years. And this came up <laughs> in the UK when I was a baby doctor because Margaret Thatcher had been in power for so long that it no longer was a 
discriminatory question. You'd have something say, what year is it? Oh, 1841. <laughs> Who's the Prime Minister? Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Everyone knew Always that. right. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a very good question, Rainbow, because we know that people who start off more highly functioning can cover their cognitive decline very well because they find works around. So they, they do. They find ways of managing it, and so it tends to get diagnosed a little bit later. Mm. So great question. But thank you, Prudence. It's a it's reminder welcome. to all of us <laughs> that we don't have any magic for warding off dementia, but that basic lifestyle stuff of running around, keeping yourself healthy, yeah, looking after your blood pressure, sleeping well, eating well, not smoking, drinking in moderation. And we'll be coming back to that later on. Three. Triple. Ah. Rainbow, you've got something for us this morning. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the um, Andrews government's uh, initiative on mental health in young people uh, in schools. There's, you know, estimated one in seven uh, children in Victoria are experiencing mental health issues. And when we talk about mental health issues, predominantly anxiety, depression and ADHD. You know, compare that to one in five adults at any one time experiencing a mental health issue. Um, and we, we, we know that half of uh, difficulties with mental health in adults start before the age of 14, so it completely makes sense to be taking action you know, um, early, early in um, people's lives. So it's great to see that um, the state government is putting money into... Um, into trying to do something about this and to support young people with their mental health. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was announced the uh, putting uh, mental health professionals, more mental health professionals into schools. Um, 33 schools, I believe, um, will in term three be getting an extra person funded, uh, a mental health per- uh, professional, whether a psychologist or a youth worker, um, to give one-on-one counselling to young people. This is in secondary schools. Um, to support teachers. Teachers, um, obviously, the, the better position they are to support the young people, the, 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 you know, that, that's what we want, but also to support themselves in having to deal with bullying, which is um, something we hear more and more about, bullying from parents, bullying from students. Um, and also to be providing some kind of, you know, psychoeducation, ongoing education in schools around mental health. Before, so, before we start talking about the fix, can I just take you back to that figure? Because that's an astonishingly high figure. One in seven school kids has some form of mental health disorder. Do we know is that different from what it used to be? And is this just that we're being more cavalier with our diagnoses? So everyone who says, oh, mum, uh, you know, someone was nasty to me at school is now being diagnosed with a mental health disorder. What's happening here? Well, this, this is the question. That, that we, um, are we diagnosing more? Do we have more awareness of it? I mean, um, campaigns to um, promote awareness for mental health have, yes, it, it uh, will lead to people seeking treatment, but it also makes people more aware and more likely to put their hand up and be counted. Um, so, but what we are seeing is is diagnosis. I mean, I kind of think of it as diagnosis gone a little bit crazy. Um, so do you think we are seeing a, a bit of an epidemic of overdiagnosis? I believe so. I believe what we're doing is we're pathologising children. And... Um, part of this state government initiative, it's starting in the secondary schools, but there is talk of it going into the primary schools as well. And when I hear of, you know, uh, 
five, six, seven-year-old children being given a diagnosis and being given treatment, um, I kind of... It worries me a lot because, you know, in I have seen... Uh, parents that will kind of deliver their child for treatment. Uh, you know, here's my child. I think they have anxiety. I think they have depression. Can you fix it, please? Rather than... Um, uh, and that is that is what is expected and the parent stands back. My concern with with putting money... As I say, yeah, it's great that this money is going into the schools to support young people's mental health, but I'm wondering what's happening behind there, you know, whether we're treating the symptom here rather than actually looking at the cause. Um, we know the impact of family systems on children's mental health and levels of well-being and happiness and, you know, success at school. And we have another system here. We have the school system, which is, if you want, the second most important system that a child encounters. Um, and just last week, you know, talk of... Uh, NAPLAN, whether you know NAPLAN is a good thing or whether we're we're doing this, this is the correct thing to do. We're providing another thing that not only uh, the young people but also their parents are getting stressed about. You know, so we're, we're very aware of stress uh, for adults with you know the way that the world has become so fast. It's exactly the same for children, um, and we're expecting children to keep up with it we're expecting children to jump hurdles um and it feels like we're looking at the symptoms and not actually questioning what we are providing so what do you mean by that so what, what 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 are we not providing that that's causing the problem in your view well the whole idea the whole uh, principle of diagnosis is that you kind of tick boxes. You score things and you come up with an with a diagnosis or not a diagnosis. The school system is kind of working in the same way that people, young people, are expected to jump hurdles. Yeah, um, they're coming out of a, a family system that really needs to support that, and, and a lot of family systems aren't supporting that. Um, we know that parent uh, modelling of anxiety, parents' avoidance of things because of anxiety contributes to, you know, the possibility of anxiety developing in young people. We know that attachment problems, difficulties can lead to mental health issues. Um, and we're not... It's not that we're not putting... We don't know this and we're not putting some money into it, but it feels that there is more and more attention being put on our children to be able to perform, not just academically, but in their levels of happiness. Okay. So in a sense you're saying we've kind of created the problems and then we're trying to fix it instead of going back to how we've created the problem and intervening there, yeah. which I completely have to say I agree with. And if you think about how society has moved um, where, you know, the pressures, you know, the lack of natural mindful activity, how busy people are, how busy children are, that lack of boredom, that lack of just time wandering home, you know, taking a slow walk home from school and, you know, throwing some sticks into a river or, you know, something very naturally mindful. Those And even um, manual tasks, you know, there's so few out in the garden or out doing chores. All of that stuff is very good for mental health. And so we've moved to a time where that natural... 
um, mindful activity is not built into our day. Kids are, you know, go from rushing to school to their after-school activities to expectations and homeworks and achieving and and then we're like, oh, and don't get stressed and don't get anxious. And if you do, you have to go and see the psychologist. It's, it, I, I can completely see how what your concerns are on that level. And, yeah, it's just, it feels – but unfortunately, I, and I see anxiety in families, and when you talk about some of the other things that could happen in the family life or how something can be managed, that actually seems harder than just getting a psychologist involved. I, yeah. want, I want to add to your list of – things that we don't do anymore is boredom yeah um there's something very therapeutic that can come from boredom and so i don't know if rainbow with you whether you would agree with that um but i also wonder whether you, when you say we're over treating <clears throat> whether you were going down the path of over treating with medication not just psychologically i wasn't going to go down that path um, because that's a we'll whole other that's we'll a whole other, <laughs> other discussion yeah. but um for things um, what our tolerance is now, I think, of um, individuality, of, you know, the idea of what is normal has changed. For instance, you know, if a child is in school and is tapping the desk or, you know, moving around or something, um, this is their way of coping with where they are. And, I, and, and people can do, you know, young kids can do all sorts of things for short periods of time, you know, have little habits that they have for a while and then they disappear. And, and what they're doing often is just dealing with stress at that moment and it'll disappear and I think we're very good at jumping on things you know we're we're a little bit scared of our children being anything but 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 a person that fits beautifully in a box you know that we can tie up with a with a ribbon we want our children to to fit a certain mold and and that is even though we talk about um, encouraging individuality in our education system, it's actually very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So what you're saying, Miss Medic, is it is easier to diagnose, identify a problem and, and take that problem off to a psychologist or to a, a doctor and, um, and, and be done with it. But it mm. doesn't actually fix the... the um, the source of the problem no and i think i think we have become a little bit intolerant of difference and um intolerant of changing our lives perhaps in a way that's inconvenient for us as adults to fit in our children um you could take this back to the amount of people that seek assistance for infant sleep which we think you know largely babies general lots of babies don't sleep well for the first maybe two years of life um and we're very quick to say that's not on that can't happen i need a baby that sleeps through the night instead of changing our lives around them or i have a six-year-old that still ends up in my bed every night and i've just adapted my life to suit how that works and um and i think that we we're we're somewhat reluctant to do that or accept that in society now and i think that you know it's potentially not working out well for our children who are becoming the focus and the those that are being labeled with the problem when you know in fact kids are a very good little litmus test of what's going on in their family unit and in society is on a on a more broader scale you know kids show the signs when things are not working as well and maybe we need to remove our focus from the child and look at the bigger picture look at the family look at the school and look at society as a whole and you're talking about boredom dr nick you know boredom is sitting still sitting on the fence swinging your legs when you're still you can actually feel what's going on inside you if you're moving you're always 
always doing stuff, you don't have any sense of your emotional world at all. So you don't have the opportunity to learn how to regulate it. And Rainbow, if we could ask you the sort of wish list question, if it was up to you to allocate all this massive funding that the state government's going to put into health in schools, how would you do it and why would it make a difference? Uh, Mindfulness in schools. Okay. You know, downtime in schools. And, you know, this is happening in some schools. It is happening in some schools. And um, more time doing, uh, you know, doing drawing art, more of that in schools. Uh, You know, I have it at some schools where that is actually being cut back rather than increased because it's an opportunity to use both sides of the brain (laughs) and to be still. It's funny you should say that. We were clearing out my now 22-year-old daughter's bedroom and we found one of her pieces of art from primary school that she'd written on it. I would have loved to do this better if I'd had more time and the teacher had written, unfortunately, the art class is always the class that has the time cut from it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What was that, 15 years ago, something like that? So, yeah, absolutely right. Time is one of those things we don't give to this and uh, I'm I'm surprised and in some ways quite pleased because we don't have time to go down this but you haven't mentioned devices and screens at all. Well yeah I mean yeah cut those cut those back and 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 keep um, children away from you know your own if you want to live this lifestyle that never stops you know um, it's a choice as a parent but you are actually educating your children to do exactly the the same thing. And while we're talking that, can we say not just keep the kids away from the screens, but keep yourself away as well? The number of times I see people in the park and the babies in the pram and the mums looking at the phone, not just the mums, the dads. Are the, yeah, that's right. But, I'd uh, li- yeah. yeah, I'd like to encourage also um, counsellors, psychologists, um, all medical practitioners to be a little braver in um, addressing the parental anxiety, depression, mental health stuff rather than going along with the diagnosis, with the pathologisation of the child. Three triple R. Coming on to what sometimes turns men into arseholes. We're talking alcohol prudence. That's right, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, instant arsehole, just add alcohol. OK, we'll talk a bit about... I thought we'd talk a little bit about alcohol because it's Sunday morning um, and so some of us may be feeling the, the effects of that. And, um, I mean, I, there was something that just came up in the news in the last week or so which was... Um, a, 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 um, a paper, an article in, in the very prestigious medical journal, the British one, The Lancet, which has highlighted that global alcohol consumption is on the rise. In partic- Well, globally it's on the rise. In China, they think now it's set to rise 70% <clears throat> since 1990. And they've got some you know, amazing statistics. Basically, by 2030, which isn't that far away now, um, over half of the adults worldwide will drink. And they reckon a quarter of that population will binge drink at least once month. And China was traditionally a relatively low alcohol yeah, country, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's one of the much, much lower in the in the sort of a whole range of stats in terms of, you know, it's the, the, the large consumption countries are Europe and uh, North America and, that, so and down a, here too. That's a lot of people if they start drinking significantly. Yeah, and I, mean, I guess probably one, it's a big market, mm. big, big export market for us, so there's some, you know, we can see what might drive some of this stuff. And I was just sort of looking at some of the, the figures, and I mean, one of the standout ones, because we know the French love love their drop of wine and everything. The average um, alcohol consumption, they measure it in in litres of pure alcohol per year. (laughs) So you've got to kind of think this through a little bit. And I'll, you know, so think a litre of pure alcohol. So if you think of it like a bottle of scotch or gin is about 40% alcohol. So that means it's more like two and a half 
litres of, of, you know, spirits. And, of course, a bottle's only 750 mils, so we're now talking about three or four bottles or something per, you know, litre of, of alcohol almost. Um, how much do the French drink? French men, on average, drink 19 litres of pure alcohol a year. 19? 19 litres of pure alcohol. Compared Interesting. to... Compared compared to- French women who only, only drink six. And I'm trying to translate yeah. this into bottles of wine, so yeah. I'm presuming you've got around oh. about ten bottles of wine to one like litre of pure yeah, alcohol. That's, so that's French men are drinking of bottles 190, of wine. 200 bottles yes. of wine. Yep, hundreds of bottles of wine. Wow. And in this country it's beer, of course, and even then I think the average is something like, well, uh, it's, it's hundreds, hundreds of, of stubbies. A year. So you've given no. the Frenchmen 19 litres. You have given them <laughs> in the article. <laughs> yeah. Frenchmen 19 litres. For the women, it was what, six? Six, yeah. And so how does that compare with us? Well, actually, we're much lower. In fact, our, uh, interestingly, um, alcohol consumption in Australia has dropped. In 1975, we were up at 15 litres for men, probably quite, quite a bit lower for women. Um, compared to that 19 litres currently for France, we were at 15, but we're now down to 9.4. 9.4 on average. For our men? Or do For our men, po- yeah. Okay. yeah so. well, well, actually, that's probably overall, but still, it's all come down quite dramatically. And I suppose that's, that's one interesting thing. It's like, why is that happening? Even though, actually, I think we're seeing alcohol, you know, production and the commercialisation of it is, is everywhere. It's, you know, it's advertised. I can't go down the street without seeing a bottle shop. And, um, you know, that's how we socialise. Um, but one of the things that came out with this sort of uh, World Health Organisation, again, that wonderful wonderful sort of organisation, is that they came to the conclusion that there is no safe level of alcohol consumption, which was something, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, my, my younger son, who's in his 20s, sort of said to me, oh, well, of course, having a glass of wine a day is good for you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I had to say, well, it depends what you mean by good and how you interpret some of these studies, because, yes, I think, you know, there is some, you know, some weakish sort of evidence around, you know, uh, benefits for, for heart and circulation well, it's, and it's, stroke. Th- this was what was called the French paradox. It was popular in the yeah. 80s, and I was certainly taught this, that um, the evidence from France was that the lower rates of cardiovascular disease may be due to their regular intake of particularly yeah. red wine and that the tannins and something in the it's grape skin was protective. Thinking. And so there's this concept that the regular glass of red wine lowered risk. Yeah. and. All of the subsequent research has really said there's not a lot of hard evidence that's, right. that's the case. You know, and, and there's been studies as well that people will quote to you, you know, which is that non-drinkers you know, have shorter life expectancies and various other things. And, and it's a question of how you analyse the data in these studies and how well they've been controlled because an awful lot of people who don't drink will have been, for example, ex-drinkers. They've got liver disease. They've got other, you know, other health Issues which mean that they're not actually as healthy to begin with. And so the fact that they don't drink is actually probably prolonging their life, not shortening it. But compared to moderate drinkers, and moderate drinkers probably largely fall into a socioeconomic group who are going to be, you know, who have a regular income, who probably have a different education level and so on. So they look up, they, get, they have gym memberships as well. So they kind of counteract the effects. They can offset the red wine with running um, around on the treadmill. So while you think that a glass of red wine a day might be good, the reality is that, you know, there are some really negative effects of drinking alcohol. Cancer being one of them, and especially in older people, again, where cancers are much higher sort of prevalence. But they were sort of stating, for example, that one in 13 breast cancers in the UK are pretty much attributable to alcohol. And um, 27% of cancer deaths in women can be alcohol-related. 
Mm. I want to come back to what you just said about breast cancer, which is such a horrifically common cancer. That's right. And this article article in The Lancet was saying one in 13 of those... One in 13 of those cancers are attributable to alcohol consumption, When you think of a cancer that's as common as breast cancer, and if alcohol has that stronger contribution... Wow, yeah. does, that, does that mean adult women should say, for the sake well, of that, well, I should makes, become... It raise, well, adult anybody's, you know, we've got to think about, you know, the, the broad impacts, yeah. Um, and, and certainly in young people we see particular issues and around road injuries and self-harm, which, um, you know, is a major contributor there. And, of course, family violence. Yeah, you know, I they don't even mention that, but I mean, yeah. that was one of the other things that was going through my mind as I was driving in this morning. It was like, you know, <clears throat> this is the sort of impacts that we don't even even mention sometimes. The where where alcohol actually is um, a, a major contributing factor, and it's a bit like, well, what do you do? I mean, we've got. A, I think there's a big social sort of you know community and element to this because you know we 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 abstain um, and it's kind of um, short term and it's popular because we go and do Feb fast or Dry July or something. Um, and um, but you know, if, uh, if you go out and you say you tell people that I don't, uh, I'm. Uh, uh, I'm not drinking. The first thing they think is, oh, are you ill? Or pregnant. Or pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's sort of almost like being ill in a way. It's for some people, it's for your drinkers. Um, Or you're what, the designated driver, so it's only tonight. Whatever it is, you're not doing... It's not forever, is it? You're just, you know, you must be doing something for, you know... Except for the young people, which is really interesting. There's now, you know, quite a strong sort of movement in, I think, young people where they like, don't need alcohol to have fun. Um, there's also that real move towards, um, you know, that fit inspo and all that, showing your breakfast on Instagram and your smoothie and how fit you are. And that has sort of counted. That certainly wasn't happening when I yeah. was a teenager. Um, there wasn't that sort of counterculture going on about celebrating health mm. and well-being not and that that in dis- that in of itself is necessarily the healthiest thing but that's a topic for another day but there is that going on as well which means it's not that cool to be horribly hung over and not then that's in right. your lululemon and, you know, i think that's reflected in the data as well because actually it's not young people who are drinking more you know they're drinking less which of course means that the older ones are drinking more because the older ones also probably again have the income have the disposable income have the lifestyle and so on where drinking is is an absolutely standard part and also the you know if we're talking about increasing societal stress we know that for many people alcohol is used as a stress reliever it's that oh i've had a full-on day i'm gonna open a beer and it's that kind of um treated as that um mode of relaxation that is really acceptable within our society well yeah and even from from health bodies which sort of recommend you know you know no more than 21 standard drinks a week or 14 standard drinks for women that's still sort of like two glasses of wine or you know best part of a day which actually the evidence would state that is not healthy at all you you mentioned in your intro the availability when you walk down the street you can't drive anywhere really without seeing a bottle shop i was fascinated by this when i was in japan a couple of months ago you don't see bottle shops almost anywhere in fact when you try and buy a bottle of wine it's really quite hard 
Don't they, they have a vending machine though, where you can just? <laughs> they have a vending machine where you can get sake. Where you can buy a, a new camera, a new mobile phone, a pair of underpants, or a bottle of of, of beer, but, but not wine. But to, did they have any data for? I don't know. Japan? I haven't got that one. Sorry, no, doctor. Okay. I haven't got that one. I'm at just, all. It, I'm I'm just about fascinated that. whether the massive availability, yeah. because it must make a difference to how much people drink in this country. And I'm wondering also if younger people they have better, they have more access to recreational drugs and whether mm. they're going down that track rather than drinking, which may be more expensive. Drinking. Oh, yeah. Drinking well, that's and that. I mean, when we look at the sort of levels of taxation, absolutely, and that's generally the way that it's. You know, people have attempted to control it, and governments have attempted to control it through, you know, standard pricing based on units of alcohol, for example, so that, you know, the cheap types of alcohol, the cask wine or the cider, which you know was the traditional stuff that was low cost, you know, would actually be much more expensive as a way of controlling consumption and revenue generating, of course, as well. And in the article in the Lancet, did they talk about what we were talking about a little bit earlier about domestic? Um, uh, not so much that one, but yes, I mean obviously that the whole range of health, um, negative health outcomes. I'm I mean, it's just too long to list. Really. I'm now going to apologise to our listening audience about how we're bringing everything down today. We've got abortion laws in Alabama, which are becoming draconian. We're saying you can't even have a drink without getting breast cancer. Can we bring in something? What can we bring in positive? Anyone think of anything? I was about to talk after the break about the voluntary assisted dying legislation, and I've got some really, I've got some great news about that. So perhaps we'll go to a break and then we'll talk about that in just a minute. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and I just wanted to um, alert people, uh, if you weren't aware of this, that in June the 19th, so just a few weeks away, uh, Victoria's voluntary assisted dying legislation comes into force. And uh, the implementation conference was held last week, and I attended all three days of that. Uh, and it was a really extraordinary event. There were over 400 healthcare providers, one kind or another, lots of um, doctors, of course, but there were plenty of nurses, allied health. And I thought rather wonderfully there were quite a lot of people there, we took a little poll of this, who who also were still very against the concept of voluntary assisted dying, but they'd come to the conference to find out what was going on. They didn't come to protest. There were protesters outside. But within the conference, there were people there uh, who still were not comfortable with this new legislation, but were there to find out what's happening and to give their views. So it was a very well-rounded and extraordinary two days to be had. What were you... What were you taught in terms of managing your own experience of of the process? Yeah, what a great question. And one of the one of the resources that was available at the conference was a series of people from Canada where they've had voluntary assisted dying legislation for a couple of years now and they came over to help talk us through because of course we've set it up but we haven't started it yet. So they started talking about what the process was like and one of the things that was made clear by the doctor who was the first doctor in Canada to provide what that country is called made medical assistance in dying and the doctors actually provide it by injection so it's a very confronting process and he said after I'd done the first one I walked out then I had no idea what to do I just drove around and went and ate a big steak boy (laughs) but there was no process to Mm. help look after people and he said one of the things that you need to do in this country is and they have a a a community of practice uh, so they've got a whole set up group of people who are involved who are sympathetic who are supportive 
And are most of the people that are driving this, are they people that have had experience of their own loved ones having chronic terminal conditions? It seems that it seems that one of the things that makes people most sympathetic towards the concept of voluntary assistance in dying is having seen a poor death whether it's uh, personally, professionally, through their own family. So, yes, that's, that's often what makes people realise that I think this is a good thing. Yeah. Dr Nick, do you just want to go through for our listeners as quickly what the new legislation, what it involves and what the practice will look like? Yes, and it's, it's important to understand that Victoria's laws are considered to be the tightest, the safest, the most restrictive voluntary-assisted dying laws of any jurisdiction in the world. Uh, there are 68 safeguards in place and the process will be available to anyone with a terminal disease, which commonly will be malignancy, uh, but maybe others, it could be heart disease, could be lung disease, uh, with a lifespan expected to be six months or less, unless it's a neurological disorder like motor neurone disease, where it can be a lifespan expected to be of 12 months. But they have to have a terminal diagnosis certified by a specialist and they have to have what's seen as intolerable suffering and that is what the patient experiences as suffering that cannot be relieved by other methods like palliative care so those are the criteria that you have to fit you have to be over 18 you have to be a resident of victoria for over 18 months so you can't pop down from queensland to avail yourself of this legislation you've got to be a local person and there have to be two doctors involved a coordinating doctor who'll see you through the process an independent specialist You've got to ask for it. You've got to confirm that you want. You've got to put it in writing. There's, you can't just say, oh, I'll think about this today and then just do it on a whim. That cannot happen. And there has to be a minimum of nine days between the first request and, and the written request. So in that, is, in that process, is the family involved? Is there kind of like a... You know, as you're talking about the individual, and obviously it's the individual's choice to, to make... You know, it's their choice... Um, actually not always, is it? So, well, not always is the question of coercion um, because uh, that's been one of the real concerns of a lot of people who are against voluntary-assisted dying legislation. They're very concerned that once it's available, people will be pushing to get granny bumped off so they can get the inheritance early. This came up in in the uh, Canadian experience and they said that was a major concern when it came in. They said... In all of their experience, all their conversations, they have not once seen a case where they considered coercion was what was driving the person to it. Families, uh, we expect families will be involved. They don't have to be. It's an individual thing, but most individuals do this with support from family and friends. And again, the, the Canadian experience was extraordinary because when they did their research, they found that the bereavement experience for the families where people had died through MAID the medical assistance in dying in Canada, the bereavement experience was very positive. The outcomes were much better in those families than the average bereaved family. So is there any... Where does medical power of attorney fit in with this? Does it at all? The only person who can request to have voluntary assistance in dying is the person themselves. They have to have the capacity to ask for that at the time and at the time of of doing it. You cannot ask for this through an attorney or a a medical treatment decision maker. It has to be your individual. And that's one of the criteria that are required. So dementia is specifically ruled out. You cannot access voluntary assisted in dying if you have dementia because you don't have the capacity to make that request. 
What happens next? What's the what's the timeline of this? Yeah, June the nineteenth, it becomes law. So we've already I've already had people approach me saying, when it becomes law, um, I've got a terminal illness. Uh, will you be prepared to help? So that that's people are listening to this and they know someone who's in that position or they're in that position themselves. I'm sorry if that's the case, but if they're interested in this, you need to go to your medical provider now to talk to them about this because a lot of doctors are very unaware what the process is. They haven't been involved. Uh, The other thing is Victoria is the only jurisdiction in the world where doctors have to undergo training and pass an exam in order to do this provision. Yeah, so it's not just every GP is not going to be able to assist you but should be able to direct you to someone who could. Or every GP can then choose to do the training. So if someone wants to talk to their doctor about this and suss them out and find out are they sympathetic, are they on board for it, then they can do so. And if that GP doesn't know much about it, they can get that information uh, from the department, the Vic Health website. It's got a massive amount of information. It's really well done there documents for doctors documents for consumers uh, and then the doctor can undertake the training you don't you don't have to undertake the training to talk about it with someone and this is then typically carried out at home in the in the patient's well, home or we haven't done it yet so we don't know but well, we, we anticipate that's what you imagine it to be it won't we be anticipate we anticipate facility. that most people will do this at home people of course may be quite um, physically unwell so they're unlikely to say that we'll go for a walk in the botanical gardens and do it there uh, so <laughs> but may, not in a palliative care facility it, necessarily it could be in a hospital or in a, a facility of some be, kind yeah. um, so it's it's up to the individual to make that choice mm. can um, I ask you maybe a difficult question to answer but um do you do you feel prepared for this work you know, is there going to be a feedback process of the people that were involved in um the the, the training that you've had in this is there going to be a feedback process to it's a great question and again the canadian experience was extraordinary because they had the law forced upon them by a supreme court decision and they were told the doctors were told they've got to get this all organized because we've made a ruling that this has to happen and uh, uh, they had no preparation at all. The Canadians who came to this conference were in awe of what Victoria has done in terms of preparation, how thorough it has been, how good the information is. And they were absolutely astonished by the training uh, and how thorough it is. So I think doctors who want to do this will be very well prepared. Um, but at the moment, I think a lot of doctors aren't because they don't know about it. So any doctors listening out there, jump onto the Vic Health web- website and get the information because if you want to be involved, uh, and I th- as a doctor myself, I think this is one of the most compassionate things we can do. The, mm. we, we, we look after people, we respect their wishes about their health, and one of the best things we can do is help them at the end of their lives to die in the most comfortable way that's appropriate for them. And most doctors have, like you alluded to earlier, have seen um, bad deaths. So death is not the worst thing that can happen to someone if it's done it can be done in a compassionate and kind um, and respectful way to to uh, honor them and their wishes. As Leah Kaminsky, who's a local Victorian GP and writer, one of her books was called "We're All Going to Die," and and of course this is true. So it's going to happen. Um, my only interest as a doctor is trying to make that process as smooth as uh, as. Un- unpleasant as possible for the person and respecting their wishes and this is this is just one option one of the yeah. things that all the research elsewhere has shown having it available is a huge source of comfort to a lot of people a lot of people never use it it's not as if we're expecting lots of people to choose voluntary assistance in dying but knowing that it's an option is sometimes one of the best pieces of comfort that people can have
That's actually the brightest note that we've had, <laughs> you know, today on the program. I mean, it's a beautiful sunny out day out there. I'd like to encourage people to go and buy themselves a punnet full of berries or something, eat something healthy, have some fresh water, go for a walk, look at the trees, pat your dogs, throw a stick in a river. <laughs> yes. Sit on a fence and swing your legs. Yes. Absolutely. Experience, experience the realities of boredom. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and Rainbow, thank you. That's a that's a, a lovely way to think about wrapping up for the today. And um, and and thank you, listeners, for uh, indulging us on, in this. Um, post-election Sunday morning. Um, I, I, I'm seeing a few smiles now. We started, we started off. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of listeners um, to Triple R of similar political persuasion to ourselves. There will be people out there who are delighted with the outcome. So for those people who are, well, congratulations. Um, your wishes have come true. Um, but for the rest of us, uh, we'll just say it's been uh, wonderful having you on board uh, listening to us this morning. Thank you, Miss Medic, to Prudence Dear and to Rainbow Doc um, for all your input today. Uh, Panel Beta, uh, as always, twiddling the knobs and buttons. Uh, That's just been fantastic. Uh, I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime to Triple R Radio On Demand. And you can always download the podcast so you can listen to us again and again and again. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.